The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. None who rules over you simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your co-host. Today is Sunday, so it's time for the Limeys for a show entitled Benzali's Morning Sonata, First Movement, with my co-host Malifka Scott. So let's bring them up right now. Malifka, are you with us? I'm with you, Andy. It's lovely to be back. Um, what a beautiful morning it is this morning. I know it's... Um, it's not very warm out there, but the sun is piercing through the clouds, and it's it's just ah, oh, it just looks beautiful out there this morning. Really, really nice, lovely skyline, everything. So uh, yeah, lovely to be back. I've got a spring in my step this morning. Excellent. It's a bit overcast here, and as I'm talking to you all, it is ten nineteen a.m. here in the UK on Sunday, February the eleventh, which I believe is Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> Um, that makes it, what, 5.19am over on the east coast of America and 2.19am, now 20, on the west coast of America. And today's show image is of the great actor Daniel Benzali. And the show title Benzali's Morning Sonata First Movement is taken from his Wikipedia page from which I quote as follows... NYPD Blue and LA law creator Stephen Bochco was so impressed with Benzali's performances that Bochco later cast him in the lead role of, the, of his 1995 series Murder One, playing attorney Ted Hoffman. For his performance, Benzali was nominated for a Golden Globe Award. The series was not especially successful, though highly regarded later, and Benzali left after its first season. Bochco later revealed that he fired Benzali because he refused to leave his home before he completed his morning bowel movement and was perpetually, perpetually late to the set. So, just clarifying the title for you there. So, before... Oh, dear. Well, before we get into today's Limish show, I just want to draw your attention to today's traditional Christian message entitled Sanctity of Life, an eight-minute show written by Dr. Peter Hammond that I put up earlier on achshow.com. So, please check that out if it interests you. Malifkus, what have you been up to since we recorded our last show that you would like to share with me and the audience? Over to you. 
Well, I tell you what, uh, I did. I don't know whether I, I think I mentioned it last week. I've been reading a book called Chaos, which is about the uh, the Manson, you know, Tate murders, etc., etc. You know, um, Charles Manson, etc., etc. And I have to say, it's a compelling read, Andy. I've nearly got to the end of it. I think I've got about eighty pages left. And f- from what I can ascertain at the moment, um, you know, that guy should have been put in prison, like so many times it's ridiculous and all law enforcement purposely turned a blind eye to everything that was going on um he was i would say as far as that he was he was protected he was uh basically he was a lab rat him and his family were a lab rat uh, were lab rats used in an experiment on you know uh, an observational experiment regarding the drugs of, of the time and as far as I'm concerned, currently, unless anything says different towards the end of the book, as I say, I have got 80 or 90 pages left. As far as I can see, he was a CIA experiment that went slightly awry and had to be covered up afterwards. So there you go. That's what I've gleaned from it so far. It is a compelling read and it completely changes the story. The whole thing about Bugliosi and, and the Helter Skelter motif is definitely utter nonsense. So... Uh, Tom O'Neill, the book is by folks. I believe you can find it on archive.org, but please support Tom and his work um, and go out and get a copy of the book. It's a fantastic read. Yes, it's interesting because um, the, <laughs> yeah, uh, Bugliosi, I, I had a look at the Helter Skelter book many years ago, but there was something that, uh, I don't know if this was it, that I saw he'd written since that book. The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder. And um, I think, I don't know, I'm probably looking at the wrong thing, but yeah, uh, this guy, Bugliosi, there was something about him that I found out after I read that book that I wasn't too happy with. He was very sort of mainstream, if that makes any sense. Um, yeah. And uh, so it's giving you like the mainstream line. Um, but, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. But the cover ups involved in the Manson case, uh, in the case of Manson and the family, the cover ups involved were phenomenal. Um, And in fact, the fact that this guy spent a large proportion of his uh, a large proportion, I would say a good 10, 15 years digging on this. Um, And, you know, he interviewed Bugliosi a few times. And in the end, um, they they parted company because Bugliosi lost the plot with him, threatening to sue him, threatening to have all sorts of things done to him, you know, crazy, absolutely crazy, you know, um, you know, little things like if anyone's familiar with the story, um, the idea was is that the, the the killings took place in that particular house because Terry Melcher, the guy who uh, was the only American producer to produce any Beatles music, um used to live in that house and it was sent out apparently to get you know because he turned down manson for a for a record deal this is how the helter skelter motive goes um you know because he he wanted to send a message to terry melcher by murdering the people in his former house well that's that's a loose string anyway isn't it let's be honest Um, but the fact is melcher visited manson several times after the murders so (laughs) It's just, I mean, the web is just unbelievably tangled 
unbelievably tangled and how tom o'neill managed to sift through it all is it just shows that is real diligent reporting work so I, like i say i can't recommend the book enough I've, i don't generally do things that are to do with um if you like pop culture i tend to do things that are history and i thought i'll, I'll have this as a, as a little bit of a break a little bit of a release and, and um, do you know what it sent me down the same routes that i'm generally always going down in my researches anyway absolutely incredible that's what happened to me with the um i heard you paint houses uh, charles brandt book that i read uh, one christmas because it was what the martin school says the film the irishman was based on and then later yeah. in the book i find um that he was supporting this, you know, hitman, mafia hitman, um, was supporting Joe Biden becoming senator of Delaware. And I'm like, what? This is, you know, and this, of course, was when he was president and stuff. It was only a couple of years ago I read it. And it was all this stuff that you wouldn't find in a sort of conspiracy show or a conspiracy book. But sometimes you find something, you know, relevant. And, and essentially it was talking about... Um, you know, some sort of nefarious things going on behind the scenes to get him elected. And you think, I'm, I'm trying to get away from all this stuff about <laughs> the, to, to read this book. You don't expect it to pop up in a book like that, you know, this guy being elected in the 1970s. But I have found from his Wikipedia page, Vincent Bugliosi's Wikipedia page, um, listen to this. This is what immediate because I'd read Helter Skelter years before, before I even knew about this stuff. I think it had been out. 80s 90s something like that maybe i don't know when but i i read it i don't remember it but i remember reading it um it says here bugliosi wrote a book uh entitled reclaiming history the assassination of president john f kennedy published in may 2007 which was 1612 pages with a CD-ROM containing an additional 90, 958 pages of endnotes and 170 pages of source notes. His book examined the JFK assassination in detail and drew on a variety of sources. His findings were in line with those of the Warren Report, which concluded that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in the assassination of the 35th president. He called reclaiming history his magnum opus. The book won the 2008 Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime. Now, it's mm. mainstream now that Oswald could not have done this alone. So I'm not going to turn this into a um, JFK show, but folks, no. I mean, whatever you think about who was behind it and what have you, people could argue about that. But I don't think even in the mainstream they argue that this wasn't possible, that this guy did it. And I find it very interesting that this book comes out. It's one of these usual so, so supposed academic tomes. Oh, look, it's 1,612 pages. It's got 950 pages. 58 pages of end notes and 170 pages of source notes and it won a 2008 award and all this sort of stuff they're sort of weighing it down this must be the correct one and i don't yeah, it buy it then. yeah exactly <laughs> and so I, I you know there you go that that's that's i now discovered what it was about this guy that i didn't like so anyway uh for me funnily enough on the i've i've uh I watched the very first episode of The Sopranos this morning, just uh, before I phoned you, Maleficus, and um, I actually sat through the whole first episode without fast-forwarding. I thought, I'm going to do that 
just the first one it was written and directed by david chase and the only other one that was directed by him was the very last episode of the series and um i started the second one before i called you and i know i'm going to start fast forwarding through this because I don't know what it is with it. It, it is very well done, and you something. And I did actually notice a couple of things I hadn't noticed before. But I just, I'm not too bothered whether I notice them or not. There's a lot more going on in life without having to build your life on noticing what goes on in a television episode. Um, but yeah, it, it, recently I went through Breaking Bad on fast forward, and I got through that very quickly. I think a lot of these shows that. When it's sort of quite nasty stuff, I don't really like to watch it again. So I fast forward through it. And when there's other stuff that's just... Uh, I've said before about The Sopranos, I'm not interested in the stuff with him and his um, natural family. And there's a lot of characters in his mafia family I'm not interested in, so I can get through episodes fairly quickly. But I've been listening to the Talking Sopranos podcast again, which is good. It's something nice to go to um, that's a podcast you can listen to and it's not uh, uh, probably the best way to put it is any of you out there if there's a particular particular program that you like i mean i might look this up after the show see if there's a breaking bad podcast i think there might be and if it's done the way this talking sopranos was basically everyone that's alive and associated with that show of any note be them actors directors writers what have you they all were guests on the show and every episode of the show did a um analysis of an episode of the show uh so they covered every show and um it's interesting to listen back to and i kind of i'm more interested in listening to that than watching the shows that they're talking about but it's prompted me to go and look at the show again but have a look and see if there's any this is presented by two of the lead actors in the show as well uh, michael imperioli and uh, stephen Schripper, and they are quite entertaining to listen to and they come up with some other you know off-topic stuff that can be quite fun as well so it just gives you a break from the so-called alternative media which uh, is looking less alternative to me by the day and more controlled but um that's something i'm embarking on have just started and also last week i witnessed an emergency vehicle driver with common sense he was a paramedic on a motorcycle who when he entered a queue of traffic he was unable to pass turned his siren off and once he had cleared it he turned his siren back on unlike the vast majority of emergency vehicle drivers who leave their sirens on in a queue of traffic causing at best people in front to crawl up a curb, leaving very little room for the emergency vehicle to pass. And at worst, some drivers just stop dead in front of the emergency vehicle. (laughs) It's just uh, having... I've never... I I went on the driving test in the police where you get your ticket that you're entitled to exceed the speed limit to respond to an emergency call and put your lights on. Um. I didn't pass that, so I wasn't entitled to do that. But um, I could still put my lights on and my sirens on. I just couldn't go over the speed limit. But the reason I talk about this is I know from my experience that you put that up, and nine times out of ten, the people in front of you, they just freeze. And I had this, when I was on that actual driving course, I didn't pass. 
I expressed my frustration to one of the instructors about that. He says, well, it's not people's fault. It doesn't tell you in the highway code what you need to do in if you've got an emergency vehicle behind you. And, yeah, this guy was a nice guy, but it represents just what's wrong with society. You know, we don't need everything in black and white. We can use common sense. And the common sense, if you've got a... I've seen vehicles put their sirens on and they've got one vehicle in front of them and all that vehicle needs to do is put their foot down and let them pass but the vehicle in front will just stop but if you know the driver of the emergency vehicle they're the ones also at fault because they're experienced at turning their uh, emergency lights on and their sirens and they should know damn well that a lot of people are going to do that and it'd be better if they just you know waited until that vehicle was out of their way and then use the uh, sirens and what have you uh, any comments on that, Maleficus, before we move on? Just a little pet peeve of mine. Yeah, I mean, it just it just goes to show, Andy, I've got to be honest, it just goes to show the sort of... Um, the dumb mentality of, of your average normie that, you know, something like that occurs, and instead of using, as you say, uh, uh, instead of naturally having common sense kick into play, somebody automatically thinks, oh, what do I do? Who, who can I ask about this? That's the first thing that goes through people's heads is I'm not sure what to do because there's nobody here to tell me, you know? So, yeah, yeah. I, yeah you're right. I'm not surprised it's a pet peeve because at the end of the day, it's it's people's, you know, this is what we're dealing with all the time. <laughs> I'm sure most of the listeners will, will agree that stu- people's stupidity is our biggest problem and what we're dealing with most of the time and the reason most you know all us free thinking types are being dragged down in the mire with everyone else is because people are scared to think for themselves they don't have the natural the natural uh ability for common sense just to kick in do you get what i mean yeah no you're absolutely right um I'm just making a note of that. Very good comment, Maleficus. And uh, um, it also made me think, before I even joined the police, and I never really aspired to be a police officer. I literally applied because I couldn't, you know, it was, where I was living was uh, a difficult area to, to get a job that paid a reasonable salary. I think it was the fourth, uh, Dorset is the fourth lowest paying county in England. Um, because most of the jobs, like where you are, Maleficus, the jobs are... Um, service economy because they rely on tourist trade and they're notoriously very low paid Um, but I remember once there was an emergency set of lights uh, put up you know one side of a road is closed and so you know people go one way and then the lights change and people go another emergency police vehicle sirens and lights come on uh, to get through Um, and there was only one car behind me, so I just waved in my uh, mirror to go back, and the guy saw me, and he reversed, and I reversed, and the police car came through, and they were like, thumbs up to me, and stuff like that. But I knew that was the best way to get the car through. The guy behind me, he could see what was going on. He realised as well, and it was done. And there was nothing telling us in the highway code. The only thing I will say that you have to be careful, and this is just, it absolutely disgusts me, if you have an emergency vehicle behind you, you go through a speed camera over the speed limit to let them through. They'll charge you for it. You could write yeah. in and say, well, you know, I was doing it. to Oh, it doesn't matter. You still, you still broke the speed limit. And that, for me, is the one thing. It just 
well, one of several, but it just goes <laughs> to show how the system stinks so much that you could be helping someone, it could be a life and death situation that you've swung the balance on there, but the government will still want your money. So, unfortunately, if I've got someone behind me um, and, you know, I've got a 30 mile an hour speed limit with a camera coming up, that's all I'm going to be doing. And if I can't get out of the way, I won't be getting out of the way because there's nowhere to get out of the way to. That's that. Um, And that's down to the government because it's very simple. Because the thing is, is if you ping the camera, then the emergency vehicle will ping it too. And I remember being on emergency calls with people driving above the speed limit and they'd be if they pinged a camera they'd radio it in a camera pinged at wherever so it could be noted and quashed straight away because the tickets are still issued i think to the emergency vehicles as well i think it's an automatic process so it's just you know you shouldn't be having things like that anyway you see if you didn't have cameras and all this was done by actual police officers you know when they used to go out with a speed gun if they saw some emergency vehicle with lights on and a car in front of it going at speed to let the emergency vehicle through, they'd use their common sense and so they wouldn't point the gun at that car. But because it's all automated, because it's cheaper for them, and they just need to raise money wherever they can, if it's road pricing like this U-less nonsense, supposed to be about the environment, but it's, it's like years ago, uh, road tax, it was never spent on the roads. So that's why we've got... All these things aren't spent on the roads. You've got potholes everywhere. It's around the world. And that's why we have. It's not, they tax you and all that, but they don't put it back into that. They'll put that into their woke projects. That's where they need the money for. It's like the situation Maleficus found. Uh, have you got lots of potholes around where you live, Maleficus? Yeah, of course we have. Okay, of so. Cornwall's full of them. The point is, but so they can't afford to do that, but they can afford to put a load of migrants in a hotel. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So that's my point, folks. This is what's going on in the world. But let's not get into a rant this early into the show. (laughs) Instead, let's move on to Tom Sharp's satire, in which I will read a brief extract even from each of his 16 books. We're halfway through. This is his eighth book, The Wilt Alternative, which was originally published in 1979. And I warn you, this extract contains quite a bit of profanity. So you might want to forward the show on now if you don't want to hear that. You're not to go into that part of the cellar, she said, looking severely at the evidence of Wilt's inexpert brewing in the shape of several exploded bottles. It isn't safe. Then why does Daddy drink it? asked Penelope. When you get a little older, you'll learn that men do a great many things that aren't very sensible or safe, said Mrs. Defracas. Like wearing a bag on the end of their wigwags, asked Josephine. Well, I wouldn't quite know about that, dear, said Mrs. de Fracas, evidently torn between curiosity and a desire not to inquire too closely into the Wilt's private life. Mummy said the doctor made him wear it, continued Josephine, adding an unmentionable disease to the old lady's dossier of Wilt's faults. And I stepped on it and Daddy screamed, said Emmeline proudly. He screamed ever so loudly. I'm sure he did, dear, said Mrs. Defracas, trying to imagine the reaction of her late and liverish husband had any child been so unwise as to step on his penis. Now, let's talk about something nice. The distinction was wasted on the quads. 
When Daddy comes home from the doctor, Mummy says his wigwag will be better and he won't say fuck when he goes wee-wee. Say what, dear? asked Mrs. DeFrackers, adjusting her hearing aid, in the hope that it rather than Samantha had been at fault. The quads in unison disillusioned her. Fuck, 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 they squealed. Mrs. DeFrackers turned her hearing aid down. Well, really, she said, I don't think you should use that word. Mummy said we mustn't, too, but Michael's daddy told me I don't want to hear, said Mrs. DeFrackers hastily. In my young days, children didn't talk about such things. How did babies get born, then, asked Penelope. In the usual way, dear, only we were brought up not to mention such things. What things, demanded Penelope. Mrs. de Frackers regarded her dubiously. It was beginning to dawn on her that the Wilt Quads were not quite such nice children as she had supposed. In fact, they were distinctly unnerving. Just things, she said finally. Like cocks and cunts, asked Emmeline. Mrs. de Frackers eyed her with disgust. You could put it like that, I suppose, she said stiffly. Though frankly, I'd prefer it if you didn't. If you don't put it like that, how do you put it? asked the indefatigable Penelope. Mrs. de Frackers searched her mind in vain for an alternative. I don't quite know, she said, surprised at her own ignorance. I suppose the matter never arose. Daddy's does, said Josephine. I saw it once. Mrs. de Frackers turned her disgusted attention on the child and tried to stifle her own curiosity. You did, she said involuntarily. He was in the bathroom with Mummy and I looked through the keyhole and Daddy's... It's time you had baths too, said Mrs. de Frackers, getting to her feet before Josephine could divulge any further details of the Wilt's sexual life. So, Maleficus, do you have any questions about that book? Over to you. Oh, my word. I, I, Wilt, I'm sure that was... Uh, that Was it Wilt that was a TV show? It was Wilt we covered recently. That became yeah. a film with um, Griff Rhys-Jones and Mel Smith. Right, yeah. Um, I don't remember that section in the show. <laughs> yeah, crikey. Yeah, it was um, the... It, basically, there were... Well, there's actually, I think, five books in the Wilt series. Um, this, the uh, film, was only based on the first one. Of course, I always knew that they couldn't do a sequel because I don't know how... They could, I mean, now they could CGI stuff like that, I suppose, but they probably wouldn't have any problem with, you know, actually getting children to speak in language like that on screen anyway now, to be quite honest, no, uh, with the way society is. But um, back in, you know, the late 80s when the Wilt film came out, I was like, there'll never be a sequel because they wouldn't get away with this. Back to you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry if I sound a little bit distracted. I've just <laughs> just let the cat in my room because she was meowing outside the door. She's come in, vomited on the carpet and gone out again. Very nice. <laughs> so oh, I'd share that with you yeah. and the listeners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of these uh, hairballs by the sounds of it. But uh... uh, It didn't, didn't look like a hairball to me. But anyway, oh never mind. Yeah, that's, oh. that, I've dealt with it. It's fine. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, what we do now is uh, it's time for Texmar's fact check. We've got four of these left, including today's. Uh, and this is our section in which Tex gives his interpretation of historical events, which tends to conflict with that promoted by mainstream historians. Today's clip is entitled Tex on the Wicked Men of the Bohemian Grove, 
which is taken from an undated radio show I have of his, entitled The Wicked Men of Bohemian Groves. Let's open it up in VLC, which seems to give us the best volume. Here we go, folks. And there are things that these men do, my friends, I am unable to speak about to you. They're so despicable, so perverse, that I believe it is unlawful for me to even discuss these on this tape. But to the extent that I can follow the commandment of Ephesians 5.11, which tells us to have no part with the works and the workers of darkness, but rather to reprove them, that is to expose them and their evil, I will do so. It is very tragic to me these men are so dedicated to this mystery of iniquity and that they go about making converts and bringing more members into their bohemian grove. And it makes me recall the words of Jesus about those who so hated and despised him. He said of them that when they make a convert, that convert becomes twice the son of hell that they are. And I think as time goes on, as converts have been made of sometimes supposedly good men by the Bohemian Grove members, this is an escalating prophecy. In other words, a new member becomes twice the son of hell as a former member, and then when he recruits somebody, he becomes twice the son of hell as that member. And therefore, we have a geometric multiplication of evil in the last days and thus Paul said that things will wax worse and worse in the last days with men deceiving and being deceived okay so there you have it that's what text thinks maybe he's right or maybe he's wrong but as we always say on this show you be the judge Okay, so now it's time for Shakespeare's quote of the week. A crew of patches, rude mechanicals that work for bread upon the Athenian walls. That's from Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 3, Scene 2. In current language, a bunch of amateurs, rude labourers who earn their money by working in shops in Athens. Suggestions for use. There are several uses, one as a piece of self-irony. For example, in reply to someone who asks what you do for a living, in a somewhat arrogant tone, your reply could be, I am but a rude mechanical who works for bread upon the Athenian walls. What happens in the actual play? A bunch of amateurs meet to rehearse a play that they plan to perform on the occasion of the wedding of Theseus, Duke of Athens, with Hippolyta, Queen of the Amazons. The play is a story of order and disorder, reality and appearance, and love and marriage. Jimmy's comment. For millennia, the theatre has been a source of entertainment and education. However, the association of politics and theatre was often and usually introduced as a means to pinpoint tragedy or ridicule or corruption. It was, as all good theatre is, a means to instruct and entertain. However, as the Italian philosopher George Agamben recently pointed out, 
It is quite peculiar that most recently, and in an unexpected and disquieting way, the role of a political leader is assumed by actors. The most glaring current example is Zelensky in Ukraine, whose signature bestseller skit was playing the piano with his genitals. Earlier on in Italy, a comic actor-turned-politician inaugurated the fashion of stuffing political speeches with low-grade profanities. He founded a party intended to bring sincerity in, in Italian politics, the profanities being a tool to display sincerity. He turned out to be a complete fraud, including his pretended sincerity. The characters were murky and linked to equally murky international political figures. He did not make people laugh as an actor and made them vomit as a politician. In the US there was Reagan, a minor actor as such, but, as common, inflated by rhetoric and the media machine. A media machine owned and controlled by the unmentionables who were angry at Jimmy Carter for having made Israel return the Sinai to Egypt after the invasion of 1967. We may observe in the phenomenon of actors replacing politicians evidence of the decline of the figure of the professional politician and of the increasing influence of the media and propaganda at large. But it also shows what is happening implies a transformation of the relationship between politics and truth worthy of reflection. That politics implies lying requires no demonstration. However, this simply meant that the politician to achieve the true, at least from his point of view, could gingerly tell the false. Today there is a difference. Symbolically and actually falsehood for one's political ends is not obsolete. On the contrary, falsehood has become the end of politics, or rather politics has become the social articulation of the false. Such transformation of the relationship between politics and truth deserves reflection. That, that politics involves lying is obvious, but this simply meant that the politician, in order to achieve goals that he considered true from his point of view, could, without too much scruple, tell the false. What is currently happening is different. There is no longer a use of falsehood for one's own political ends, but, on the contrary, falsehood has become in itself the end of politics. Consequently, politics is quite simply the social articulation of the false. Which explains why today the actor is necessarily the paradigm of the political leader. And the good actor is not, in fact, the one who passionately identifies with his part, but the one who, keeping his cool, keeps his part, so to speak, at a distance. He will seem all the more true, the less he will hide his lie. The theatre performs an operation on truth and falsehood, where the true is produced by exhibiting the false. The curtain rises and falls to remind the viewers of the unreality of what they are seeing. For this reason, politics has become the extreme form of the spectacle, an extreme form of show, an unprecedented reversal of the theatrical relationship between truth and falsehood, which now aims to produce falsehood through a particular operation on truth. Okay, so, um, Maleficus, uh, any comments on that over hold on let me i've got your mute uh please go ahead now yeah wow that brilliant uh brilliant um you know what he said about about uh i'm not going to comment on the on the actual um uh the quote itself but you know what what he's he's described there reminds me of a conversation i had with my uh, a friend of the family someone i've known for a very very long time and she said uh 
how many people are there in America? I said, well, I, said, I, I believe it's about 350 million. I think it's something along those lines, isn't it? Am I right? Um, and yeah, she I said, think really? 330, 350, something like that, yeah. Yeah, she said, really? She said, and that's really the best two candidates they can come up with. <laughs> obviously for the presidency and uh, <laughs> i think you know that just epitomizes what what jimmy said you know in in the in that little section there absolutely you know that you know trump and biden she said is that, is that really the best two people they can come up with out of 350 million people and i just thought well, that's such a brilliant statement so yeah um yeah back to you andy yeah, I'll have to get back to Jimmy as well, because uh, I thought that that'd be, it's still not short enough. I had to leave a bit of that out, unfortunately. So, um, yeah, I forgot to do my little blurb at the end. But uh, basically, as you all know, Jimmy's email address and Malifka's email address are in the post for the show. So if you want to contact either of them, their details are there. So now it's time for this week's The People Who Failed to Join Sven Longshanks in Prison and How They Did It segment of the show, which is brought to you courtesy of the British justice system. Sven Longshanks was sent to prison for two and a half years on May the 15th, 2023, for comments he made on his radio show, the archives of which are still available on RadioAlbion.com, a station you could simply stop listening to if you chose to do so, in the same way I stopped listening to the BBC over a year ago when I chose not to renew my television licence. So here are this week's people who failed to join Sven Longshanks in prison and how they did it. First up, Yahoo News headline, Former rabbi caught with child abuse images narrowly avoids jail. Next, Shropshire Star headline, NHS worker high on cannabis avoids jail after writing off another car in police chase. Next, Press and Journal headline, Dingwall man spared jail after threatening behaviour towards new mum. Next, the leader headline, Young mould men spared jail after group attack in public. And finally, Daily Mail headline, Groom 41 who was left fighting for his life after he was punched by a stranger at his Grand National themed stag party reveals he feels robbed, upset, angry and let down after his 33-year-old attacker was spared jail. Whilst I could present many, many more headlines, that concludes this week's The People Who Failed to Join Sven Longshanks in Prison and How They Did It segment. So, Malifkus, do you have any headlines for us? Over to you. Yeah, I got one here from the Salisbury Journal. Salisbury man Philip Arthur avoids prison following sexual assault. Uh, Another one here, Bolton man who bit two police officers avoids prison. Uh, And police officer Daniel... Uh, Keneally, I believe, avoids jail for false statement that saw activist wrongly imprisoned. So there you go. He's put evidence together. Uh, Daniel Daniel Keneally, or Ken, Keneally, son of former Premier uh, Christina Keneally, was convicted of fabricating evidence but avoided jail. So there you go. That's that's uh, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Special yeah. Longshanks is in prison for speaking, not mm. fabricating evidence, not sexually assaulting anyone, not biting police officers, just speaking. <laughs> yeah. Incredible. I laugh, but it ain't funny. It's not funny at all. And that brings me to back to the alternative media. Folks, do be careful of these people out there with their little chat rooms and stuff like that. 
these could well be I, I believe the vast majority of alternative media is fake and uh, at best and at worst it's um, entrapment so if if you're going to make some you know inflammatory comments you can imagine uh, the possibility of the reason why some of these people are being kept out of jail because they need to save the places for you so do be careful where you go and what you say online because i believe that there's a lot of things out there designed to trap you okay so as of december the 1st 2022 we have a total of 2362 people having died after taking the fake vaccine and 474,018 people having been injured after taking the fake vaccine these figures were published on the british government's website page entitled coronavirus covid19 vaccine and first reactions and were aggregated from the totals of the five vaccine analysis prints linked to on that page i say were because the british government are no longer publishing these as Whilst their website page still exists, the five vaccine analysis prints have now been deleted from it, so I have absolutely no idea of the official figures today. Also, the UK government petition Stop the Online Safety Bill, Keep Free Speech Free, which as of this time last week had 369 signatures, including Shelley's, Maleficus's and mine, as of a minute ago. I just clicked on it. It has only 374 signatures, five in a week. So now let's go over to Maleficus for his The Great Distraction segment of the show. So take it away, my good man. I have to say, thank you, Al, because my friend Al signed that this week. So his is one of those signatures. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Mail Online article here. England is battling its biggest measles outbreak in 10 years amid spiralling cases in the West Midlands. Latest data, folks, reveals that 118 people have contracted the virus in the last week. I'm not laughing at those 118 people, but, uh, you know, if 750,000 is 1% of the UK population, then 118 people is really nothing. So, uh, yeah, a BBC article here as well saying the same thing. Measles cases continuing to rise. Uh, of course, they're blaming it on lack of vaccination in children, uh, all that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm not medically equipped uh, mentally to be able to tell you whether that's true or not. But, uh, you know, there we go. Uh, experts raise alarm as deadly dog disease sweeps the UK. Be afraid, people. Be very afraid. And apparently this 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 particular disease uh, that you can that dogs can catch, uh, it's called uh, Alabama rot, apparently. Uh and they get it from digging in the soil, folks. So keep, don't let your dogs dig in the soil, will you? Be afraid. Be very afraid. Um, frightening maps. This is Mail Online article. Uh, that was from the um, uh, that was from the Express, by the way. That last one. Uh, Mail Online article here. Frightening maps show how deadly fungal diseases are surging across the U.S. as Michigan woman reveals lung-destroying strain has killed two of her relatives. So uh, it's got an interactive map there that you can see just how fast it's spreading. And one of the comments actually uh, in the underneath said, uh, said, well, the, the map's changed since this morning. There seems to be more dots on it. Uh, not enough clicks. <laughs> and that, that was the comment. So uh, here's another one. Whooping cough is on the rise with nearly a thousand cases reported. See numbers near you. 
So more fear mongering in, in the press there regarding you know, we never monitored all this stuff in the press before ever. You know, and now since covid, we're monitoring absolutely everything, you know. Uh, so here we go. Uh, Guardian article experts lament appalling decline in health of under fives in the UK. And it says here some of the bullet points more than a fifth of children age five are over. Uh, more than a fifth of children age five are overweight or obese. Nearly a quarter of five-year-olds in England are affected by tooth decay. Well, your baby teeth don't last that long anyway, let's be honest. Um, between 2014 and 2017, there was a rise in infant mortality in England, disproportionately affecting the poorest parts of the country. The UK ranks 30th out of 49 OECD countries in infant mortality. Uh, a decrease in the proportion of children having vaccinations. There you go. And a rise in demand for children's mental health services. Well, in the society we live in, as I covered last week, I'm not surprised that children have mental health problems. So I wouldn't like to grow up. I, I don't know what you folks think out there, but I would not like to be a child in this generation, you know, in this era, I really wouldn't. Um, so here's a good one for you, Andy. You'll like this Mail Online article: Senior Health Service figures raise concerns that rollout of new Alzheimer's drugs could cost the taxpayer one billion a year and endanger the lives of patients with the disease. <laughs> right. Two much-hyped Alzheimer's drugs may never get NHS approval after an official report claimed that they have limited clinical benefit. Do you reckon they're still going to roll them out, folks? I reckon. More than likely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mail Online article here. Now Pfizer wants to start selling its COVID jab privately in chemists from next month after, uh, after ministers announced a slimmed down rollout. So they're not rolling it out as far. Um, you know, they're, they're targeting they're targeting certain individuals. Let's put it that way. They are essentially targeting the old and the infirm. So uh, and all the rest of you mugs, basically, is what they're saying. All the rest of you mugs who want to go and get it are going to have to go and pay for it at a chemist. Um, so now chemists can can roll this stuff out. It's just, you know. Your, your, your local pharmacy can go and you can go there and, and pay to have that done. It's just uh, making money out of fear, isn't it? Uh, so here we go. The, uh, the Joint Committee on Vaccine, what's it called? The Joint Committee on Vaccine and Immunisation here in the UK. This is a government, uh, uh, uk.gov, uh, dot, uh, gov.uk web, uh, web page, advises, so the, the Joint Committee on Vaccine and Immunisation has announced uh, its advice to the government for the COVID-19 vaccine programme uh, for spring this year. So adults aged 75 and over, residents in care homes for older adults and individuals aged six months and over who are immunosuppressed. There you go. So there you go. That, that's they're the people they're targeting so uh, i'm just going to leave that there andy there ends the great distraction and i will hand back over to you thank you malificus and uh now it's time for some of this week's daily mail articles that didn't end up behind their mail plus paywall first up 
a nod to, to I'll start again, a nod to tradition, a dash of unexpected cool, and a pair of strangely mismatched earrings. Yes, Generation Z's latest style icon is 76-year-old Queen Camilla. Next, Biden calls Israeli leader Benjamin Netanyahu a bad fucking guy in latest foul-mouthed tirade from 81-year-old president. Next, Daily Mail witnesses sexual assault in Mark Zuckerberg's Horizon Worlds as gang rapes, child grooming and sexual harassment flood the metaverse. Next, revealed how BBC journalists are liking tweets spreading anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Israel despite corporation vow to crack down on bias. A staff reveal it's frightening to be Jewish at the BBC. Next, Nadine Dorries. I salute Brianna Gay's brave mother. But a ban on children owning smartphones would be unenforceable. Big tech must shield them from the web's darkest corners. Next, her mass monster told hostage Emily Hand, nine, I'll kill you with this knife, her father reveals, as he demands Israel destroys the terror group, otherwise all the lives lost were pointless. Next, how the king met his disgraced great-uncle for the first time, just a year before the monarch's own cancer diagnosis, before the former monarch's, rather, own cancer diagnosis. Charles, then 21, saw Edward VIII at his Paris home, but hated dreadful American guests, and was relieved to escape after 45 minutes. Next, just don't call us swingers. We speak to ordinary middle-class parents, embracing the growing trend for non-monogamous relationships and how it compares to raunchy on-screen dramas. Next, it's a royal flash. German princess becomes the first aristocrat to appear naked in Playboy and says her great-great-grandfather, the last king of Saxony, would have approved. Next, Virgin Media 02 switches on the UK's first residential 2 gigabyte per second broadband service and it's 28 times faster than the national average connection. Next, exclusive, mother's phone call with her daughter before hearing her mass killers argue over who got to kidnap her. Family release harrowing audio to mark four months since she was abducted in Israel. Next, January was officially the hottest on records fit on record figures reveal, as concerned climate scientists warn rapid reductions in greenhouse gas emissions are the only way to curb global warming. Next, China has made dramatic advances in its hypersonic missiles that can reach up to 6,500 miles per hour and are almost impossible to stop, intelligence officials warn. Next, returning to hell. Families who survived Hamas massacre at Berry have refused to go back. I don't blame them. I have now seen, heard and even smelled the horror of what is left behind in their homes. Next, meet Britain's sickest man, YouTuber who doorstepped Manchester bomb victims and planted hidden camera in vain bid to prove one was an actor as his conspiracy theory videos racked up millions of views online 
finally meets his match after she sued him. Next, the outrageous claims by Putin that Carlson let slip by. Poland started World War II, Russia owns Ukraine, and it's satellite for the and it's a satellite for the US, and CIA blew up Nord Stream. Next, Houthi rebels sentenced 13 people to be stoned to death for homosexuality while the world is busy watching the Iran-backed group's Red Sea attacks in support of Gaza. Next, Rishi Sunak reveals his mother pushed him to take extra drama classes so he spoke properly and not with an accent as he lifts the lid on awful racism he experienced as a child. Next, exclusive, I feel like I have a new family. Emotional moment, son, of hero British army officer who liberated the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in 1945, meets the family of one of the many Jewish prisoners his father saved from the Nazis. Next, our energy meter has reached the end of its life, and our supplier says a smart meter is now a legal requirement. Next, Sharon Osborne says Kanye West fucked with the wrong Jew by using Aussie sample, but unrepentant rapper hits back and pokes fun at Pear's Halloween costumes. Next, exclusive revealed. Iran is recruiting British Muslims to spy on Jews and dissidents of the Tehran regime to gather information that may be used to carry out attacks on UK soil. And finally, virgins set to pop their cherries in front of the camera with the help of sex surrogates on idyllic tropical island for new Channel 4 show. Okay, that's almost it for me. So, Maleficus, please close out your contribution to today's show with your news roundup of the week. The floor is yours. Yeah, you know, that's, that's a good little selection of headlines there, Andy. Good little selection of headlines. I like it. Um, okay, so something I, I uh, meant to mention, actually, in The Great Distraction, electric cars. Lords urge action on misinformation in the press. <laughs> Like they're, they're not catching They first fire, blamed it on uh, on Rowan Atkinson, didn't they? Did you see that? It actually no, in the lawns. They said it. No, it was lots of. He- they said, "Oh, it's his fault because he did." Uh, he was saying about they're not fun and all that, and uh, yeah, and then the uh, even like the Daily Mail wound that back, said, "You know, this isn't right. It's just it's a lot of reasons for it. You can't blame Rowan Atkinson for it." But yeah, it was actually brought up in the lawns. Oh, it was his fault yeah. because he's been attacking electric cars. But, of course, he's also pro-free speech, as we've talked about on this show. Please offend me, he says. We need to be offended more and more. And, of course, that doesn't fit in with the powers that should not be. Sorry to interrupt. Back to you. No, no, that's great. Yeah, uh, uh, valid points. Valid points. So um, um, I thought this was a funny one. Kamala comes to Biden's defence to blast pol- blast politically motivated and gratuitous hits on the president's memory <laughs> well fr- from what i can gather from some of her public appearances she's not that far behind him, <laughs> in my personal opinion mm. uh, so anyway uh so we've had uh, i've got an article here from the hill uh, uh and it says uh boris johnson calls tucker carlson a traitor for the putin interview um i don't remember boris johnson doing an awful lot for us over here um so, and this is something about this this whole 
thing. I got into a big discussion because a friend, my friend over in Canada is, is very pro Putin, as I've said before. And uh, obviously this interview with Tucker Carlson has gone viral. And what I find very strange about the whole thing <clears throat> is the fact that uh, RT, if you, if you don't use a VPN over here, you have a virtual private network, you cannot access RT's website. So you cannot access any quote unquote Russian propaganda from the UK. Yet if you want to watch Tucker Carlson's interview, it's freely available to all. So, yeah, something's amiss there. Do you get, don't you think, Andy, something is a little bit amiss there that uh, yeah. mm. they've allowed this, they've allowed this out? Yeah, um, my view on the Russia-Ukraine conflict is it's so reminiscent of the Battle of the Somme where it's just designed to wipe out a certain group of people by getting them to keep killing each other. That that's the real aim of it. And of course, both that would make both Putin and Zelensky willing uh, participants in that scheme. Um, that's the only evidence that I've seen. And the other thing is, is that RT.com, as I pointed out on the Saturday show, they reported earlier in the week that Putin had been meeting some rabbis. And I've just uh, asked the question as to whether uh, that was discussed in the Tucker Carlson-Vladimir Putin interview. Back to you, Maleficus. Yes, well, I've, I've, <clears throat> I've watched it once and I've listened to it twice while I was at work. Uh, because, well, I'm not going to go into detail about it because any, any, everyone can go and watch it for themselves. But I can tell you, no, that wasn't brought up in the interview. So um, <clears throat> one thing that uh, my friend keeps hammering home at me, my friend from Canada keeps hammering home, home at me, is the fact that uh, all Rothschild banking systems, shall we say, have been kicked out of Russia. Uh, and he sent me an article from the American media group. I've not actually seen this particular newspaper before. And it says, boom, Putin's chilling warning to Rothschild. Our future generations will be born without Rothschild's chains around their wrists and ankles. This is apparently a quote from Putin himself. Um, well, if you go on to, uh, yeah, for, so for starters, if you try and fact check that, i.e., uh, go to all these you know, regular fact checkers. Uh, so PolitiFact and factcheck.org, all that kind of thing. Um, it says Rothschild & Co. has an office in Moscow that has been operating in Russia since the mid-1990s. Uh, yet posts on social media falsely claim that Russia has barred the Rothschild's banking family from doing business in that country. Now, it provides a link where you can go to um, Rothschild & Co., Dot com, okay, and if you go to the contact us page and look for their office locations, it's all very, quite, very, very straightforward and simple to do. Go for that. Go and look for their office locations. It'll bring up a map, and you can you can tick what regions of the world you want included, and it, it brings up a map, and uh, you can look at the map, and <laughs> lo and behold. Uh, according to Rothschild's own website, they don't have any outlets in the whole of Russia. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, so I just thought that was that was uh, quite interesting, to say the least. Um, so one of the other things. Oh, yes. So <laughs> regular listeners will remember last week we all had the opportunity to ask the governor of the Bank of England um, 
to ask the governor of the Bank of England uh, any questions. And let me just bring up my little article here. Oh, have I even got it? Uh, yes, yeah, so what... <laughs> I haven't actually got it. I'm just going to go and bring it up now. You thought I'd have got that all together, Andy, wouldn't you? I've, I've got it. I can quickly, if it's going to be quicker. Right. I just, no, I've got it. I've you've got, got it now. It. Okay, it yeah, so yeah. the follow-up article is Andrew Bailey grilled by you on sky-high inflation and why he's got recession the, the recession forecast wrong. Now, listeners will remember last week, my question to him was um, – why do you print money from nothing and charge us interest upon it, thereby creating an economy based on debt? Well, folks, he answered my question. Shall I say at least he included that question or that in question was included in the response article? And I thought, oh, great, brilliant. So would you like to hear what the response was, Andy? Yes, please go <laughs> ahead. This should enlighten us all, shouldn't it? Quote, after the global financial crisis of 2008, the Bank of England, like many central banks around the world, started a program of quantitative easing. This sometimes is described as printing money, though it's not a very accurate description. It is a process of buying government bonds with newly created money in order to bring down borrowing costs across the economy. Quantitative easing has been an important tool for supporting the economy through shocks like the aftermath of the banking crisis and COVID when interest rates were already set very low. Now, my response in actual fact, because uh, I thought, well, I'll tell you, I'll read my response to you. My response that I put into the comments at the bottom I said, wow, he actually included my question. Why do you print money from nothing and charge us interest upon it, thereby creating an economy based on debt? But he didn't actually answer it. Central banks have always created money from thin air long before 2008. What a pathetic answer. If every one in every country and each respective country is in debt, who are they in debt to? Any answers, folks? And as soon as I clicked post it came up it, it posted it there and instantly right next to it was a message saying content deactivated why <laughs> so i clicked on the why and it says uh quote unquote your comment appears to violate our community guidelines and has been deactivated oh really oh really so what are their community guidelines then? Well, one of the community guidelines is, is that you're, you're not allowed to deride people or uh, et cetera, et cetera. But there was, you're not allowed to deride people, but you're allowed to deride their opinions. Well, there was no, <laughs> there is nothing against their community guidelines in that answer. Now, I was going to try and comment on another article just to see if my account had been shadow banned because there is no way someone would have, would have been able to read it as quickly as the message came up. The message came up that the content had been deactivated as soon as I posted it. So they obviously have targeted my account on that to make sure, even if it's just for that article, I haven't put it to the test, but even if it's just for that article, my comments were instantly banned. So on that note, Andy, uh, I've got a Mail Online article here 
Holocaust denier David Irving, 85, who dismissed Auschwitz gas chambers as a fairy tale, requires round-the-clock care after falling ill in Florida, Florida and his family plead for cash from his admirers. That is the title of the um, article. Now, um, being on David Irving's mailing list, as I've bought a few of his books, um, I received the email. And yes, sadly, David Irving is very poorly and it looks like um, he will no longer be able to continue his work on real history. Um, now, bearing in mind what I just said about deriding people in newspaper comments sections, this article has has garnered 586 comments to date. And let's just say, I would say 99% of the comments there are deriding an individual. So obviously what works for one doesn't necessarily work for another, Andy. I'm just being consistent in pointing out their inconsistencies, as you say. Um, now, finally from me, <clears throat> Finally, from me, and uh, this this could affect all us Brits over here, us limey Brits. Beer duty could shut down 750 pubs, as Jeremy Hunt warned to uh, to cut tax in spring budget. So bosses of pub chains up and down the country are pleading with the Chancellor to slash beer duty when he delivers his spring statement on March the sixth, because because it's killing. It's killing the pubs. It's killing all the um, pubs and, and uh, local community places where people gather. I wonder why the government would want to shut down all these pubs, Andy. Uh, I'll leave that to you and the good listeners to work out for yourselves. So uh, that's it from me this week. Um, it's been great to be back with you guys and uh, uh, hand back over to you, Andy. Thank you so much, Malifka. Great job there. And um, so... Last item from me, Daily Mail headline, Controversial Cambridge University fellow sparks another race row after claiming black people would only be famous for sports and entertainment in a meritocracy and says Harvard would have no black professors. On that bombshell, you have been listening to The Limey's episode 155, Benzali's Morning Sonata First Movement. We Limeys will be back with you next Sunday. Peter and I will be back with you on Tuesday. And until then, folks, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week and bye for now.